Welcome to Multilingual Montessori, a podcast where we discuss multilingualism, multiculturalism, and raising children from a Montessori perspective. I'm Gabrielle Kutkov, an AMI Montessori guide and TESOL instructor, and I'm the founder of the Multilingual Montessori website and Instagram account. Each week on the podcast, I interview parents who are raising multilingual children, Montessori guides who have taught in bilingual classrooms or who are themselves multilingual, and adults who grew up speaking two or more languages. We discuss the intersection between language and identity, how to find balance when speaking two or more languages in a monolingual environment, and all the joys and challenges that we experience along the way. Today I'm speaking with Tanya Ginsberg-Jambu, a French-American bilingual mom and Montessorian living in California. Tanya grew up bilingual, speaking both French and English with her American father and French mother. Tanya and her husband, who's French, have three children with whom they speak exclusively in French at home. Tanya is trained as an AMI 3-6 Montessori guide, and before she became a mother, she taught in a bilingual Montessori children's house in Paris. She shares what that experience was like for her and how bilingual education functioned in that classroom. In addition to her Montessori training, Tanya is also trained in the Pickler Method, known as RAI, or Resources for Infant Educators, and she is also trained as a neuromovement practitioner. We talk about how she uses both her RAI and neuromovement trainings with her children these days, and how neuromovement has been particularly transformative for her son, who has cerebral palsy. We also get into a wonderful discussion about language and identity, both about how these themes have shown up in Tanya's own life and how she sees them manifesting in her children's lives as they grow. I think you're going to learn a lot from Tanya, who so generously shared her own experiences and her family's experiences with bilingualism, Montessori, and more. Here's my conversation with Tanya. Hi, Tanya. Thanks for being a guest on the podcast. It's an honor, Gabrielle. I'm so happy to chat with you today. Um, So to start out, I'd love for you to introduce yourself. Tell us who you are, where you live, and about your family. Wonderful. So my name is Tanya, and we currently live in Marin, California. I am married to a wonderful Frenchman, and we have three children. Uh, Our eldest is Nora, who is almost nine. We have a son named Benjamin, who is almost six. And we have a little baby who is almost one. Oh, wonderful. So we're going to talk all about them. Um, But first, I would love to hear about your Montessori journey. So how did you first find out about Montessori and what drew you to Montessori? Uh, Right. So uh, I was finishing up my bachelor's in education in California and getting my teaching credential for elementary and I, something wasn't sitting right with me in my experience uh, teaching in the public district. And I knew I really wanted to move to Paris. So I sent out my resume to every bilingual school in Paris, private, uh, American, British, anything, just in the hopes of getting a job. Uh, I was uh, taken as an assistant in a toddler AMI Montessori classroom in Paris. And I knew very little about Montessori, uh, but I decided to take it. They were the only ones who called me back and I jumped on the occasion. It was a part-time job and I moved to Paris and I started working in this toddler class as the assistant. And I completely fell in love with what I was seeing, with what I was seeing with the main guide, with what I was seeing in other classrooms, with what I was seeing with the children. And so I was the English part of the co-teacher and the main guide was the French speaker. And I fell in love with this, with what I was seeing. And uh, after about a year, 
my boyfriend at the time, who then became my husband, uh, got a job in Dublin, Ireland. And my boss at the time told me about a phenomenal Montessori training program that was there. So I decided to move to Dublin. Uh, I did my teaching or my Montessori uh, credentials there for the three to six year olds. And amazingly, my previous boss took me back the next year. So I moved back to Paris and I became one of the two main guides in a bilingual classroom in Paris for the three to six year olds. And it was phenomenal. I, I loved most, almost every second of it. <laughs> yeah. So tell me more about teaching in a bilingual classroom. Um, what were, what were the highs and the lows that you can remember? So the, um, it, it, it was a little bit different, even though we were AMI, uh, we were two guides. Typically there's only one and then a non-trained assistant. However, because it was bilingual, we were two fully trained Montessori teachers, and one of us was only teaching in French, and the other was only teaching in English. So I took the English uh, position, and my colleague, uh, she was also brand new, right out of her training. So we were two very freshly new trained Montessorians, and we were given a class where the previous teacher had left the class kind of in a chaotic mode, where she spoke badly about the class. And so we had very few returning families. So it was almost as though we were starting from scratch with all of our enthusiasm, all of our youth. And it was a phenomenal experience to really take all of the theory and put it into practice. Um, I would say th there were a few difficult aspects. First of all, this was uh, back in the early 2000s and Montessori was not known in France. At that point, Google was just taking off. And so what most people thought of Montessori was, oh, well, that's where Larry and Sergey went. <laughs> yeah. Co-founders of Google. And that was pretty much what most people knew about Montessori. Uh, and so we had a lot of families who knew very little about Montessori and they saw it as uh, a bilingual elite school is how we were sometimes viewed. And so to educate the families tended to be the most difficult part of what we were experiencing. And the fact that at home, the pedagogy or the way of being with the child wasn't being followed. And so on my first week, a little boy took the crayons and tossed them up in the air and they broke on the ground. And we were horrified. We were so surprised and we reacted the, the way that we do in the classroom. We pointed out that they were broken and what a shame it is because they were so beautiful. And his response was, well, let's just go out and buy new ones. <laughs> and, and that was kind of a reality check <laughs> for, for us as young teachers. Uh, so th that I think was, was, those were some of the more difficult aspects. There were so many, though, more positive aspects to it. Uh, the fact of seeing what a true bilingual classroom looks like. We did have some Anglophones, some families from the UK, some families from the United States. Uh, we also had families who didn't speak either English or French and who were in Paris for a job placement. So we had some Iran Iranian families. Uh, we had um, some families from Dubai, so they did have some English, um, but there were also other languages at home. And it was remarkable to see that after three years in our classroom, every child was pretty bilingual. I would say uh, probably over 75% uh, fully bilingual. And it was just amazing to see that at first the French children tended to gravitate towards my colleague and the Anglophone children tended to gravitate towards myself. And then within just a few months, it was a really beautiful mix. And so to see the only Anglophones interacting with the Francophones, the Francophones uh, interacting with the Anglophones, it was really beautiful. It was really beautiful. Wow, that is amazing. Um, what do you remember about teaching, reading, and writing? What did you... Um, 
like what language did you start in? Was it different based on the child's home language or the school that they were going to after the classroom? How did that work? It's a really good question. So the way we positioned it with the families was we would always meet with the families when their child had just entered our classroom. And we would have a very open dialogue explaining if, if the child were only Francophone, for example, and coming from a very French background, the way we would explain it was all of practical life, all of sensorial will be presented in both, in English and in French. The beginning of arithmetics and the beginning of language would be presented in their native language to give them a strong foundation in what was the most easy for them. And that afterwards, afterwards meaning once they knew their sounds in their native language, once they knew a few basic uh, words that they could sound out, then I would come in as the Anglophone and introduce the English sounds. And it would, it would be vice versa. So all the Anglophone children would start with me in English and arithmetics. And then slowly they would ease into French. And what we found was by doing it this way, the child for the first year, year and a half would be completely immersed orally in both languages. And then once the foundation of their native language was settled, it was very, very quick for them to pick up then how to read um, and how to sound out words in the other language. French obviously has far more rules than English, so that it might have taken the Anglophone children a little bit longer to understand the French reading, but they did, they did understand it. And then for the children who came from neither, we had a German family, for example, uh, where the, the child didn't really speak English or French, uh, we asked the families what they preferred. And this given family chose French because they had chosen to live in France and their plan was to continue living in France. So that child was first immersed really in the French and then slowly in the English. Got it. Oh, that's so cool. And how long did you teach there in total? So I was able to teach, I did one year in the toddlers. So that was my formation, my learning experience. And then I had five years in the uh, primary classroom. So I was able to see uh, three, four, five different groups of children kind of do their three-year cycles. Okay, so speaking about language, tell me about your own language journey and what languages did you grow up speaking and hearing as a child? So, uh, so I was born and raised in Southern California. My parents moved to California about nine months before I was born and they had been living in Paris. Uh, my father is, or was American. Uh, however, he was, uh, fully trilingual in Spanish, French, and English. And they had spent a few years living in France. My mother is fully French. And so when they moved to the States right before I was born, my mother didn't really speak English. And so she learned English through me, through my preschool, through my elementary years. At home, we were only speaking French. And then at school, I was getting my entire education in English. Um, and so I very quickly became much more comfortable in English. And because my mom was learning along with me, she also chose to speak a lot more English uh, to me in order to, to understand more herself. So I grew up much more comfortable in English, fully understanding all of the oral expressions in French. We would spend most of our summers in France with our family. Uh, however, reading and writing only came much, much later for me. And especially when I, when I spent most of my 20s living in Paris, that definitely helped. Yeah. Um, did you ever take a formal French class to help with the reading and writing? I did. I went to a charter school for middle school that was a fully French charter school. Uh, however, the, the teachers were not always native French speakers. And then in high school, I took French as well. And I remember my first year of French class, the teacher would have me be the example for how to pronounce things. <laughs> she herself is not a native uh, 
French speaker. And then I continued on with AP college level French classes. Um, however, I was more or less, I don't know if lucky is the word, but all of my teachers were always very gentle with me when they would grade me because my oral was so strong. However, in the end, it didn't really help me because my grammar, my spelling, my reading always lagged uh, behind. So that was my, my schooling, um, yeah, in, in French, my schooling experience. Yeah. And what do you remember about when you first moved to Paris in your 20s? Um, was it comfortable linguistically or were there some road bumps when you, bumps in the road when you first got there? Yes, there, there were. Because I grew up in the United States feeling very French when I got to France, more specifically when I got to Paris, I was viewed as an American, the way I dressed, the way I had an accent when I spoke French. And it was a little bit shocking to me because I had always viewed myself as French. But then when I was in France with, with so many French people that were not my family, it turned out I was far more American than I thought. <laughs> so it did take me some adjusting and getting used to living my life fully in French. Uh, and that took, I would say, about mm, about six months. And after six months, I felt as though I had assimilated into the culture, into, it sounds silly, but even in the way that you dress, the way I did my makeup, uh, the expressions that I was picking up on. All of my expressions were very old school because of my mom and my dad, <laughs> who had you know thirty years more than older than I was, and so sometimes it didn't quite fit into my young teenage life or twenties experience with friends. Uh, I was saying all these old expressions that they might have said in the sixties, seventies, and and so I was starting to pick up after about six months. I started to pick up on the expressions, the even the Parisian accent, because there is a Parisian accent, and that was starting to to become more comfortable for me. Ah, interesting. So you met your husband in Paris, and did you always only speak French with him? And um, do you feel like that changed your comfort level in the language or your ability in the language? Yeah, it's, it's a very interesting question. So we actually met in Southern California because he was there finishing his bachelor's in business. And we met working at a French bakery on the weekends. And we didn't start dating, but that's how we met. And his visa was expiring. So he moved back to the Paris area and I moving to Paris and not knowing anyone my age there kind of grabbed onto him. And as like a safety boat of how do I open up a bank account? How do I, you know, get my metro tickets? Things like that. And because he missed the United States so much, he grabbed onto me for that American flavor that he missed. So we actually started our relationship in English. Mm. And it was his kind of reminder and my ease that helped our relationship really blossom at first. And... Later, as we continued to live in Paris together, our relationship then shifted into French. And especially when we moved back to California, right before um, our oldest, Nora, was born, we really stuck to French when we moved back to the States. Mm. Oh, interesting. However, <laughs> when there are heated conversations, which there sometimes are in a relationship, <laughs> I revert back to English and he reverts always to French. And I always found that so interesting, even while watching my parents have discussions, my mother would always revert back to French and my father would always revert back to English, regardless of our comfort level. But when the emotions would kind of take over, we, we it, my husband and I, we each fall back into our, our more comfortable patterns, I guess. Yeah. Oh, that is interesting. Um, and so now that you are fully bilingual, do you feel like you express yourself differently in each language that you speak? And if so, how? I love this question. 
So when we first met, uh, when I first started dating my my now husband, he would always say whenever I spoke English, I was I seemed like I was so sure of myself. I was this confident woman who knew what she wanted. And then when I would speak French, I became this more timid, much more polite, uh, reserved version of myself. And it's very interesting. I think it evened itself out as I lived longer in Paris. Both personalities could be seen in either language. However, now with our oldest Nora, I see that in her. When she speaks one language, there's this confident, sure of herself personality. And then when there's the other language, uh, it's, it's a little bit more reserved. So absolutely. I also think the way of expressing oneself changes based on the language, based on the expressions, uh, all of that definitely plays, yes. Yeah. Oh, that's so interesting, especially to now see that in your daughter. Um, so let's talk about, uh, let's leave language aside for a little bit and talk more about your children. So you were a Montessori guide for years before you became a mother. And um, I'd love to know if the way that you think about Montessori or thought about Montessori changed once you had children. Oh, absolutely. Oh my goodness. <laughs> Where to begin? <laughs> yes. So I, I've never been a teacher while having children. I stopped uh, right before becoming pregnant with Nora and I, life, life happened and I've never gone back to teaching since. Uh, so I've had the joy of seeing Montessori now through the parents' eyes and watching Nora go through the toddler years, the primary, and now the elementary, the lower elementary years. And it does change. I, I don't think that I had the sensitivity of the nuance of a parent's life. I had not that teaching was easy because it was not, but I had very fixed hours with the children. I knew that they arrived at nine o'clock and I knew that they left at three o'clock. And I gave my all during those six hours, five days a week, you know, throughout the school year. But then I was able to shut it off. And as a parent, there's not that luxury. <laughs> of being able to shut it off. It's also a huge joy to see everything that happens off the clock, I guess. But it's it can also be a lot for a parent. We, we also have our own emotions. We have everything else to navigate. And then with one child and two children and three children, uh, life doesn't always get easier. And so sometimes I think what I saw as parents, maybe not understanding enough or not trying enough, however judgmental that can sound now, I didn't feel that I was being judgmental, but now I feel I have a little bit more grace in terms of myself as a parent and also looking at other parents of we're all trying the best that we can. And, and there's also a lot more grace in looking at the teacher. I had, I set the bar very high for myself as a teacher very high and I would not accept failure of any sort. And, and now as a parent, I can see the guide and the teacher as, you know, we're all trying our best. And so I feel as though I've, I'm able to give them, them more grace and myself more grace um, as, as all of my children get older and they all have needs that are very different. So in addition to your Montessori three to six training, you also did training in the Pickler approach um, or the resources for infant educating approach. So tell me about that training and what you learned about parenting an infant. It was, it was a phenomenal experience. It's actually thanks to a student teacher that I had while I was a Montessori teacher in Paris. We had a student teacher who was already a mother to an eight-year-old and 10-year-old. And she was living in Spain and she had come to Paris to do her training. 
and she had been placed in our classroom for her six weeks of, um, of internship. And she began to speak to us after school about how she had raised her daughters. And I was especially taken by what she was describing between the zero to two-year-old stage, which given my Montessori training, I had really specialized in the three to six-year-olds. And so this younger group of children, the way that she had approached their learning, the way she had approached their movements, the way she had approached how she spoke to them at such a young age, what was coming from her was just so phenomenally interesting to me. So there was a Pickler training center in Paris. And so I was able to take a few trainings through them. And I felt as though it was the most beautiful, natural, harmonious uh, prequel to Montessori that I could one day do with my own children. And so we were able to go to Budapest and visit the original Pickler Institute that's there and to really observe it in action. And then when we had our own children, we really pulled from, from Emmy Pickler's approach to young children, which is so respectful. It's so, it really allows the young baby to be seen as an individual, to be seen as a capable individual. And I feel as though there are a lot of similarities between how we treat children in the three to six-year-old classroom. We don't treat them as quote-unquote babies who are incapable of doing things. We treat them as very capable young beings who have a mind of their own, who have opinions of their own, who have interests of their own, and babies do as well. It's it's not like the child turns 10 and all of a sudden their personality pops out. <laughs> it's always there. And it, it's, it's a beautiful, beautiful approach. I, I highly recommend anyone with a young infant to, to really look into it because it's, it's a beautiful way to treat a baby, but it's also a beautiful way to treat other human beings in general, regardless of their age. And it can spill over into much older children, um, which is phenomenal. Yeah, I remember you or maybe it was your husband telling me that one thing that was um, central to the method is that you don't put a baby in a position that they can't get into or out of themselves. Um, and I think that that's also a big part of Montessori for the zero to three age group. And that made such Absolutely. an impression on me because we often put babies into positions that we think are cute, but you know, it, it's a little disorienting for them if they aren't able to get into or out of that position. So I remembered that Absolutely. as one thing. Absolutely. And you know, there's more and more scientific research now going into it. Back when Emmy Pickler in the 30s and 40s was really starting her approach, it was 100% observation based. And now there's all sorts of scientific experiments that, that are being done. And and observations in terms of what's happening to the baby's body when you're putting them in a position or in a situation that they are unfamiliar, they don't know how to actually grapple with or to put themselves in. And so there's, I'll, I'll, let, I'll let listeners go into the research if they'd like, but it's, it's true that the idea of putting a baby, and it can sound a little revolutionary, not in a seated position or not to do tummy time, uh, can sound as though it's going against a lot of what the doctors are saying. However, it's putting a huge stress on their bodies uh, to be put in those positions when a neurotypical child will eventually get to those positions 100% on their own, and they don't need any adult intervention when it comes to certain movements. Yes. Yeah, oh, that's amazing. Um... So in addition to those two trainings, you also have uh, neuro movement training. So I would love to hear about that training and um, about how you use that in your family's life now. Absolutely. So it, life is funny, but I, I, I think we're all, we all tend to be drawn to certain things. And so neuro movement is a movement modality. And we learned about it because when our son Benjamin was born, 
He uh, had an in utero stroke and then brain hemorrhage, which led to brain injury, which then led to a diagnosis of cerebral palsy. And we tried all sorts of different things uh, between uh, osteopath, between craniosacral, acupuncture, uh, regular PT, uh, physical therapy, uh, occupational therapy. And we happened upon this movement modality called neuromovement or the Anapanyal method, which is, um, which is somewhat similar to Feldenkrais, if anyone is more familiar with that. And again, it, it helps children like Benjamin or children with uh, autism or different, um, different brain injuries, different disabilities to move better in their bodies. And the way it's done is again, so respectful to where they are. There's no forcing, there's no putting the child in a position that they cannot get into. And through my training in neuromovement, what I've seen is that, for example, in our son who has cerebral palsy, if he's put in a position when he was, he, he can now sit, but before, if we had put him in the position of sitting with pillows propped up, spasticity would exponentially grow in his body. And for a child with spastic CP or cerebral palsy, that's not necessarily what we're trying to go for. Is we're trying to get less spasticity so that his movement become, can become more fluid, can become uh, more harmonious. And it's a modality that we've continued. He's almost six. He started when he was two months old and we've seen beautiful changes in his body, beautiful changes in the way he moves. Uh, it's slow. The process is very slow and yet incredibly respectful to him and to what he feels comfortable in, in the moment. Mm. Oh, that's wonderful. And, um, so what was the training like? How long was that training? So the original training is a, uh, the basic, they call it the basic training. It's about a year and a half. And when I signed up, it was, uh, it was about uh, two weeks every few months. Mm. And at that time, Benjamin was only a year and a half. Nora was four and they were just so little. And I really didn't want to get back into a training uh, we weren't really in the headspace for it, but my husband really encouraged me to try it out just for one segment. So one segment of two weeks, we all flew together to the training. Uh, he took care of the children during the day. I did the training and I thought I'll only do one segment. And I just loved it so much. All of the movements that we were doing on ourselves to really feel what the client would be feeling were, it was just phenomenal. And then the families that I met, the other parents who had also gone through various life events with their own children to lead them to that moment. We also had different physical therapists who were coming with their own backgrounds of work into this kind of modality. It was just so phenomenal that in the end, I did all segments, which lasted four years. <laughs> and so that did that train you to work with infants through adults? It did, yes. So I'm now fully uh, certified uh, in in every age group, from young children all the way to the elderly, to the high performers, as they call it. So high sports uh, achievers or high musician achievers, anything where you're using your body, uh, this modality can really help to move what we consider more elegantly. It's not necessarily the word elegant, but just clear in our bodies. Um, and to do all the movements that we do regularly uh, with more grace. You have moved around a bit since you've been a parent. Um, so being a Montessori guide and then a Montessori parent, I would love to hear about what you look for when choosing a Montessori school for your children. 
<laughs> it's a great question, Gabrielle. <laughs> uh, so I would say, I, I would like to start, I think it depends on what time of year it is. If it's September, October, so at the beginning of the school year, I obviously look for different things. The, the guide has just started with some children. The children are, are still, some of the, the younger ones are still getting used to the classroom. So it's very different if you're observing or going to visit a school at the beginning of the school year or closer to the end of the school year. So uh, if it's okay, I think I'll answer your question more on if I'm visiting or observing at the end of the school year for the following school year, what I would observe. Okay. So the, the first thing is I would definitely look at the material. Uh, given, given the fact that I am trained, it's, it's a lot easier to see the, the Neen House, more specifically the materials, how the materials are presented. Um, in case the listeners don't know, but the guide or the teacher in Montessori classrooms has the beautiful uh, uh, opportunity to set up their classroom in the most harmonious way they see fit. And so the material will always be the same, but it's really the guide who lays out the materials. And so I am sensitive to that. Uh, what am I seeing? What materials on the shelf am I seeing? Especially if it's at the end of the school year, certain arithmetic work uh, for the older children, I like to see out or being used. So that would be the first thing. The second thing I like to look at is the guide. And this can sound counterintuitive, but if I can't see the guide, it's better. <laughs> it's because the real uh, beauty of Montessori is that the guide is not at the head of the classroom. The guide is, especially in the three to six class, the guide is not the omnipresent, everyone look at me sort of personality. Uh, so if at first I don't see the guide, it's actually a really beautiful thing. It means that what I'm seeing is the activity in the children that's surpassing what I'm seeing in the guide. Um, so I, I always loved classrooms where the guide was either working one-on-one -on -one in a corner with a child or a very small group. Um, and then all of the other children were doing their own thing. Uh, obviously, if it's sometimes there are circle moments where everyone is around the, the red ellipse or sitting however they sit in the classroom, that's slightly different. But if it's just during the working period of the classroom, that's what I tend to look for. And then lastly, what I always loved to observe was the child who wasn't working, the child who was meandering about, the child who perhaps looked lost or didn't know what to do. And I always love to observe that child because that child is also so important to a Montessori primary class. It's what is the child soaking up by quote unquote, not doing anything? Are they observing? Are they walking around? Are they trying to find a friend? And then to see how the guide or how the assistant redirects that child was always so important to me um, because there, there shouldn't be any negativity towards that child. That child is also free to just meander or maybe they had just finished a really difficult work and they needed that little bit of downtime. And so how did the guide or the assistant facilitate that transition into allowing the child that moment of mental rest and then also redirecting the child to then continue to find something else that's just as interesting or intriguing? So those, those are the things that I, I really love to observe and to, to see, would my child fit into this classroom? Would my child fit in easily uh, into how the classroom is run. Yeah. Oh, those are some really great things to look for and things that um, parents might not think of at first, you know, really um, you have such a, uh, an understanding of the working of a Montessori classroom. I remember that, um, you know, in schools that I worked for, parents would always need to be kind of briefed before going in. Um, sometimes it seems like complete chaos, but really it's just like a little factory, like everyone's doing something in their own corner. And so sometimes you need to know Absolutely. what to look for. 
Yeah, absolutely. And I, I really commend the schools that would speak to the parents ahead of time. And sometimes I would visit schools and they wouldn't know that I was trained. And so I was also sensitive to how they approached me, not knowing my background. And would they say, this is how the classroom might look. And, and this is how we would like you to act, right? When, when a parent visits a Montessori classroom, they should be a little fly on the wall. They're, they're not there to say hello to every child. They're there to really observe. And there's so much beauty in just observing. Uh, yeah. That's, that's wonderful that the schools were, were uh, bringing that to light for the families. So let's talk, let's go back to language. Um, tell me what bilingualism looks like in your family and your daily routine now with a almost nine-year-old, almost six-year-old and almost one-year-old. Yeah, so we, when our oldest was, when Nora was born, uh, my husband and I, we had had a discussion prior. And because all of my background had always been in English uh, with young children, I, I thought I would want to speak English to my children. And I had decided just to wait and see what would come out naturally when once I was holding this baby. And it was surprising for, to me to want, I spoke directly in French to, to Nora. It was the language that came out. Uh, my guess is that it's because my mother having sung to us lullabies in French, it was that maternal uh, language that came out. And then we decided to stay in the United States and in the, for the foreseeable future, this is where we'll be. And so we made the conscious decision to only speak French at home. So that's how we started with Nora. She didn't speak a word of English until she started in the toddler program uh, in San Diego. And, and for, she, she was quite resilient, but she was in a bilingual Spanish English school. So she was receiving two new languages at the same time. And then wow. I can only speak French. Uh, and we've continued that way. Once our son Benjamin was born, we continued to only speak French. And then now that we have uh, Sarah, our third, we only speak French to her as well. So I would say our family language is French, 100%. However, there's then the reality of the fact that Nora goes to an only English speaking school. And after, as the age of four, it, she's always been in an only English speaking school. And all of her friends are Anglophones. Uh, and so she is far more comfortable now in English. And there have been moments where we have made the decision to push French. Not every bilingual family will choose to do that. And that's absolutely in everyone's right to choose what's best for their family. It was really important for us that we continue in French. And so when she was around three, there was a period of time where she didn't want to speak French to us anymore. And we had to push that. We had to say and be very clear, this is our family language when we're outside and when you're with other people, that's in English. But when we're with our family, we only speak French. And it took a few weeks and then she, she got back uh, <laughs> into French and we're now seeing a new cycle appear where her social life is far more important than her family life now as an almost nine-year-old. And we are once again having to push a little to remind her that when she's at home, we only speak French. And when she's at school, obviously it's only in English. Uh, so that's been a little tricky to navigate. And then with our son, Benjamin, he's mostly nonverbal. And so his comprehension in French is perfect, is wonderful. I would say it's like almost any other six-year-old child. His English is very uh, based in all of his movements. All of his therapies have always been in English. And so if it's action directed, go get the ball, 
please stand, please hold this. He fully understands English, but if we ask him, or if the teacher asks him, please show me your elbow, he, he won't know that yet. Mm. And so we're having to navigate that world as well of he's in a public school, uh, in a kindergarten and an only English speaking school. And so he's also considered not just special needs, but he's also considered an English language learner. So that's adding another level of complexity to him, to his life of navigating that. We also had to choose as, as parents, what do we do in this situation? And for now, we've still chosen to only speak French at home. Uh, even though it does add a layer of complexity, I just feel that First of all, it's our culture. It's our family culture. We have two other children to whom we only speak French. And that for his brain, it has to also be wonderful that he's getting all of these different inputs and it might take him longer to speak. It might take him longer to understand fully the two languages, but we do feel that he'll get there. And so we've chosen to only speak French to him uh, to continue that way here. Um, have you been able to connect to other French families? And um, what has that been like, I guess, especially for Nora, since she's the oldest? Does she have any friends or peers that speak French? We, we haven't, unfortunately. There, there was a little girl, it's very interesting, who comes from a French family. Uh, because of COVID, we haven't been able to really connect with this family. However, they choose to speak English together when they see each other at school. Mm. And I think that that's, it's very typical of bilingual children living in a country. They're friends. They tend to speak English to one another. Uh, I know that between myself and my brother, our preferred language is English. Even though he went to a French school throughout his entire education and we spoke French at home, he and I together speak English. And for the time being, Nora only speaks French to her siblings, um, but I don't know if that will change and we'll have to see. However, when we do go to France, I have a lot of friends who have children who are around her age. And then I see her French blossom and I see her French uh, grow exponentially because there's that peer-to-peer -peer language. Uh, the way we speak to her is very adult parent to child French. Not that we baby speak to her, but there is a dynamic in language when you're speaking to a peer or when you're speaking to someone older than you. Yeah. So we do see that when we go back to France and she does hang out with children her age, her French just becomes, she becomes fully, truly bilingual. Oh, that must be really cool to see. Um, so I think I've asked almost all of my questions before my last question. Um, did we, did I, is there anything that I didn't ask you about that you wanted to cover? I know we've covered a lot. Well, I think, I, I think this, this whole discussion about bilingualism or trilingualism or however many languages families speak at home is just so interesting and so such a wonderful discussion to be had. I think generationally, we can look at the United States and the generation of my grandparents. Uh, it was one thing to be a foreigner and no one wanted to be viewed as a foreigner. And now the fact that at most places, most of our culture in the United States can value it and can see so much value in knowing different languages. I think, again, as parents, as teachers, we're all trying our best, but I think even if it's not fully trilingual or even if it's not fully bilingual, I do see tremendous value in young children hearing different languages, being uh, open and seeing different cultures because language to me is not just words, it's also bringing in culture. I know your, your background in Italy, Italian, and it's not just the words that you're speaking. It's the, the emphasis on what are you going to speak about. It's the culture that is brought in through words, through language, through accents. 
that I think is just so beautiful to hand down to the next generation that I think sometimes I can say for myself, I can be a little hard on myself of I'm not speaking enough or we're not giving enough language, but then to also give ourselves enough grace to say, but they're already getting so much just by that little bit. And I would so wish that all schools could integrate language, a different language, regardless of what it was, what it is, at such a young age, because that's really, as Montessori would say, they're little sponges and they're soaking it all up. And it's so much easier for a three-year-old to learn a new language than a 16-year-old or a 30-year-old or a 60-year-old to learn a new language that the earlier a child can be, um, can have opportunities in hearing a different language, either through a babysitter, through a family member, I would highly encourage, uh, encourage that openness or that opportunity. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Um, well, you kind of already answered it, but my last question was going to be, what advice would you give to parents wanting to raise their child speaking multiple languages? <laughs> well, well, yeah, I, first of all, I, I, I say this as a, as a prequel or a sequel of what I just said. It's really hard for me to give recommendations. Again, we're all trying our best. <laughs> if, if you can only speak one language at home, then that's good enough. <laughs> but it's, it's true. I, I think I would encourage anyone who's open to speaking a different language to their child to do so, to read a book, even if it's not in your native language, and even if your accent is completely off, I think how wonderful we we have a, a CD that was given to us in Spanish and I don't speak Spanish whatsoever. My husband doesn't speak Spanish. And yet through songs, it somehow comes out more easily. And then to to play with the different sounds of a language is is just, I think can be so fun with young children and an opportunity once again to just hear that oh, this is different. This is not what I'm used to and that it's it's still okay. It's still beautiful. Uh, that that would be my, my recommendation. Yeah. Yeah, that's great. And one thing that I was thinking about before when you were talking about um, even just hearing another language, I think also gives children the experience of understanding that people speak different languages. And that is such an important thing to understand at a young age, even if they aren't fluent in more than one language, to understand that people speak other languages and just have that perspective shift, I think is also really beautiful. Oh, I completely, completely agree, Gabrielle. I think it opens up anyone's mind to, we're not all the same. And sometimes it's really easy to live in our little bubble wherever we are, and yet there's this huge world around us with all sorts of different people, with all sorts of different ways of speaking and being, that I do agree that through songs, through words, through language, that's kind of the opening passageway to understanding that as the child gets older and older. Absolutely. Yeah. Well, thank you so much, Tanya. This was such a wonderful conversation. Oh, it was a pleasure to reconnect with you, Gabrielle. Yes, you too. Thank you again to Tanya for joining me for this conversation. You can follow Multilingual Montessori on Instagram at multilingual.montessori and you can find more resources for raising bilingual and multilingual children from a Montessori perspective at multilingualmontessori.org. Please take a moment to subscribe to the Multilingual Montessori podcast on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you're listening right now. And if you're enjoying the podcast, don't forget to leave a five-star rating. If you'd like to join the Patreon community to keep the podcast running, you'll find the link to that in the episode description. Another wonderful way to support the podcast is to share it with someone who you think would enjoy it as well. Thanks again for listening and see you next time.